Welcome to Let's Talk Farm to Fork, the post-harvest podcast that interviews people making an impact in the fresh produce sector. We'll take a deep dive into what they do and find out how they're helping to reduce the amount of food lost or wasted along the farm to fork journey. But before we get started, did you know that according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, around 45% of the world's fruits and vegetables go to waste each year? If you would like to learn more about how you can practically play your part in maximizing fruit and vegetable supplies, whether you're a part of the industry or simply a consumer, visit postharvest.com and try out their free online course library today. Now, time for your host, Mitchell Denton. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk Farm to Fork, the post-harvest podcast that interviews people of interest across the food supply chain. Today on our show, I'm joined by Sasha Rust from Two Hands, who I'll be talking to about how their transparent marketplace system is helping reduce resource waste and influence sustainable seafood production. So with no further delays, let's get started. Good morning, Sasha. How are you? I'm good, Mitch. I'm good. Thanks for having me here. Before we get into it, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do and maybe a fun fact about yourself that most people don't know? Yeah, sure. No worries. Look, I guess uh, first and foremost, I guess I'm a little bit, you know, food and agri obsessed. I spent about 10 to 12 years working as a chef Mm -hmm. after having a very luxurious upbringing around, you know, a hobby farm and parents that only bought organic food and all that kind of thing, you know, making pasta at home after school, that kind of thing. So I was pretty lucky in that sense. You know, that obviously, you know, fell into me being a chef, as I said, and then opened a few restaurants here in Melbourne where I currently live. But these days I have a bit of an overinflated title of food systems architect working at a startup <laughs> called Two Hands. And that was sort of a bit of a lead on from a few years in the conservation space, uh, working on seafood supply chains, especially for the food industry and things like that. So my career has kind of jumped around a little bit around the food system, but um, it's always been focused on that final point of, you know, awesome food for for people to eat and enjoy, right? Fun facts, geez, where do you start, right? I mean, it's probably (laughs) hardly a unique fact to me, but, you know, I've got a bit of a noodle soup obsession. Uh, There's this one trip uh, (laughs) where I went to Japan a number of years ago now. I mean, COVID, obviously, um, and I've sort of always dubbed that as ramen day. Um, there was a day where I sort of managed to fit in, I think three, I think it might've been four, if you consider the like 4am ramen in there as well. And so it's like every meal was ramen. And so ever since it's been, um, you know, dubbed as ramen day, I recently found out actually that a good friend of mine has the exact same story and we were telling each other that story pretty much at the same time at the pub. And I'm just like, yeah, that's why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I'm more of a, uh, udon person myself. Nice. Yeah. But I, I love a good noodle soup. That can be partial to udon, right? It's it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. On that note, let's talk farm to fork. So, would you mind telling us about how Two Hands works and how the idea first came about to develop a marketplace ecosystem that favors primary producers? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, at a really high level, Two Hands is really about a food system rebuild. I've started talking about it as the development of both a digital supply chain and a physical supply chain in tandem. So it's that tension point between the digital and the physical where we really play. So fundamentally what we're doing is we're building a direct sales channel from primary producer through to customer, be that a chef, restaurant, food retailer, whatever that might be, Um, stripping out middlemen where they're no longer required. Um, The interesting thing about the supply chain is that you know, we have all of these layers of product handlers or logistics agents or marketplaces or things like that that have kind of mm. 
come into play out of necessity in the past because people have needed that to have some support in warehousing or inventory management or sales or whatever that might have been. But these days, technology can do all of that. And so, you know, the 30 to 40% of, of margin that exists in a lot of food supply chains is actually not really required. So that money can be better distributed. So Hmm. look, ultimately what it will look like in the future is, as I said, primary producers will be able to sort of own their own markets and sell directly to their customers and and the supply chain will act in a really decentralized manner um, through this marketplace mechanism whereby processes and value adders and things like that work as service providers, not stock owners, thereby Mm. sort of making it more efficient, uh, more streamlined. And of course, the really critical part is that implementation of blockchain for traceability aspects. So, you know, we're really getting that harvest data straight through to the customer in a really digestible way to give you that certainty of source and provenance. Mm. Mm. That's great. Is there a reason why Two Hands is focused particularly on tracking and tracing seafood? The seafood part of what we're doing is really where we're at today, um, and certainly it's not going to be where we're going, um, certainly not where we're only going to be in the future. Prior to my work with with Two Hands, I was working in the conservation space for a number of years. Uh, I developed a now national program that's basically a seafood sustainability guide targeted at the food industry, trying to get the food industry to change their behavior and source more carefully and, and whatnot. And so it was really about sort of giving that sector the tools to make better choices. Now, through that work where we effectively were giving a traffic light ranking to the majority of species that you see on market and we were delving into the supply chains and fisheries management and doing all of that work to sort of determine what is and isn't sustainable by a really robust kind of peer-reviewed criteria, um, it became very clear sort of the extent of the traceability problem in seafood is is, is pretty incredible. Um mm the the way a huge amount of it is done around the world and Australia doesn't escape that is is really using for some fairly archaic systems. Um, paper-based systems are often, um, so, you know, you're talking literally a handwritten note stuck onto a, a tub, often sitting on the ice, getting wet, and you can imagine how a piece of paper sitting on yeah. ice over, you know, a 36-hour journey holds up, right? Totally. And then that product can end up in markets being aggregated, all kinds of things go on in that space, you know, not not to mention um, some fairly long-standing, um, and this is a bit of a, a controversial topic, but long-standing archaic power structures that exist in that sector. And so mm. all of that means that traceability in seafood has been very, very hard. And so it's sort of made sense, A, I knew the sector, but B, the problem was the biggest. Okay, so seafood is obviously a, a huge problem area, but expanding into some of the other food categories, what's that going to look like moving forward? Yeah, look, I mean, no sector escapes some of these issues and, 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 and it can always be done better, right? So, yeah. you know, we're already working in beef, both in the US and Australia, and, you know, that's a whole different system solution, right? There's different supply chain partners there's different processes, there's different methodologies, there's different power structures, different you know organizations working in that space. And so hmm. every product category has its own challenges. Yeah. But you know, we're also about to start working in poultry and other land proteins in Australia as well. Fundamentally, the idea of building a digital and physical collaborative sort of decentralized platform, hmm. I know they're all sort of big buzzwords, but fundamentally that concept can be taken anywhere. But we need to do it in a way that is is really market appropriate, right? Um, yeah. This is something I was discussing um, with someone the other day about another platform in the UK that was doing similar work to ours. And they found themselves in a position where their main market was chefs. And then on their platform, they had 
sort of a smattering of products, you know, like one butter, but beef products and seafood products and a couple of vegetable products that were all traced mm. back to farm and, you know, you know, super legitimate and everything mm. that we want to see, but it wasn't actually a functional platform from a consumer perspective, from a market perspective. So yeah. in that way, we're taking a slightly more reserved and I guess strategic approach to how we roll this out. Okay. Okay. You were mentioning blockchain before. I find a lot of people, when you're talking about blockchain, it just straight over their head. They're just like, what are you talking about? W- would you be able to explain as best as possible to the listeners how Two Hands is using blockchain technology to help reduce the environmental impact of Australia's oceans? I can certainly explain how we're using blockchain. Can I explain sure. blockchain? Ooh, nobody can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, yeah, look, look, absolutely. I mean, I started touching on it earlier, right? I'll try maybe using some examples. Uh, mm. I mean, fisheries are sort of a highly complex thing, right? And fisheries management systems are also highly complex by nature. Yeah. Uh, they're also a human construct, right? We're applying um, a management system over a biological, natural space. Uh, mm-hmm. And therefore, it's sort of inevitable that these management systems are sort of struggle a little bit to handle the diversity and the population variances and all of those things that matter for a sustainable ecosystem or fishery or whatever you want to call mm. it at the micro mm. level. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is that the market doesn't actually currently differentiate between a species fished from two distinct populations in similar locations that may have completely different health. And so a really good example of that would be something like abalone, where Abalone populations can be entirely located around a particular reef or very micro-level region, right? So Mm. what will often happen is those abalone will be fished in various regions and then aggregated and called Victorian abalone. Um, Mm. And that's about as good as traceability is today. And so that means that you can fish out a whole population of abalone quite realistically, and yet we could consider the Victorian overall abalone stocks to be very healthy but you've wiped out a population sure um so bring that back to blockchain the important thing to recognize about blockchain is that the data that goes in is the data you get out and that's fundamentally how it works so when you are able to bring in information like the gps locations of where something was harvested the weight of that product um the time it was harvested even you know consider in the future maybe an image of that product could be loaded to the blockchain Mm-hmm. That means that all of that data can then be attached to a physical tag or some method of attaching it to that product, which then means that that product can be verified at the end of the supply chain, um, mm-hmm. whether it be just by looking at the data and weighing the product at the end of the supply chain and matching that with the product that went into the supply chain. Or as mm-hmm. I mentioned, this is something that is totally in the future, but why couldn't that be image recognition, right? Yeah. And so. There's flaws in that and, you know, many people listening to this might go, yeah, but blockchain's not perfect because, again, so the data's wrong going in, uh, that means the data's wrong going out and, yes, that's all true. So it's up to us and this is where I was talking earlier about that physical and digital kind of interplay. Like it's really Mm -hmm. important that you get that collaboration and you build build that relationship in a really robust way. Yeah, that's great. And and two hands are using a QR code system for that, is that correct? At current, we're using a QR code system. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We've developed a few different methodologies to, to apply that. Um, horn tags for lobsters, stickers for aggregated boxes, which is obviously not particularly robust, but obviously a lot, a lot of investment in R&D is going into that space. 
I mean, to mm. bring it back to the real question there around why does this matter for sustainability? Well, it's really about consumer choice, right? So mm. um, that work that I was talking about earlier where you can provide all the guidance you want through a really robust certification scheme like MSC or a guidance scheme like the Good Fish program that I ran. And so a consumer can go, yes, I'm making a sustainable choice because I'm buying a green listed piece of seafood. But if that product doesn't have that traceability intact with a really robust system like blockchain, then that consumer choice is actually meaningless because that could be a fraudulent piece of seafood or whatever you want to call it. So mm. therefore, you're not actually having the impact on the ecosystem that you think you are as a consumer. Yeah. Speaking of consumer choice, do you think there's been a noticeable shift in attitude and intentionality towards the sustainable sourcing of food from consumers and even the industry? Yeah, I think about this a lot, as you can imagine. <laughs> um <laughs> Look, there's definitely been a slow shift in the zeitgeist, yeah, for sure. Um, but I think the understanding of the issue varies so significantly that I don't think we're yet having the impact that we need to be having. Uh, and what I mean by that is the understanding of what sustainability even means in a food system. And the reason I say that is because industries have a natural bias to the economics of what they're doing. So they're always going to prefer the subset of information that allows you know, a greater profit or a greater yield or, or something like that. And that balance against sustainability is always going to be skewed a little bit to what is the most profitable version of the sustainable option. Um, mm. And so while consumers are starting to demand it, they're being fed information from so many different sources, governments, industry, conservationists like myself, and we all have a different take on what we want, right? And so we're all putting out different messaging. So like, should we really be surprised that everybody's bloody confused, right? Like, yeah. you know, who do you listen to? It's such a melange of content coming your way. Um, mm. We don't really yet have the tools to differentiate in a really digestive way with a really pure data-driven fact, you know, uh, what is sustainable and what isn't. And I suppose it's that approach that I've sort of been taking these past few years with both the work I was doing in conservation and now with, with, with Two Hands. It's really about going, you know, this is sustainable because of this third-party verification, this blockchain, you know, verification, blah, 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 give the consumer tools, then create them and it really make them digestible, right? Like at the end of the day, yeah. you're walking down the supermarket aisle, you don't want to know the amount of carbon that's being produced at a, you know, a, a confusing kind of like numeric um, value out of a beef production, right? Like you just want to know yes or no, basically. So how do we, how do we distill the facts into that level of, of decision-making? Yeah, absolutely. Following on this thread, has COVID had any influence over increasing consumer desire for full transparency and traceability of food products? Look, I certainly noticed a bit of a, a shift in people's sense of the importance of that to them. And, and I don't know if that's, you know, because people had a lot more time to think. They sat back sure. and they sort of sure. just went, oh, you know, what's actually important to me? I've had a number of chefs come to me, a lot of friends or people in my, my network that over the last sort of year and a half, had just picked up the phone and the conversation has been like, oh, you know, I really love what you've been doing, which is obviously super humbling. But then it's, but then it very quickly goes into, I just really want to do something for me. You know, I just really want to, you know, all of this has made me think and I just want to do better. Like, you know, I, I think so like strung, like tied to this business or tied to this methodology or tied to how busy I was and I haven't had the chance to do things right, right? So yeah. I've had a lot of those kinds of conversations. Um, and that's why I say, you know, maybe people had a bit more time to think. Um, yeah. 
I guess the other part of that is, I mean, the origin story of COVID, right? Like wet markets in China. I think that certainly put a bit of fear into certain sectors of society, whether or not, you know, where we end up as far as believing that or it being fact or not, who knows, but it certainly has affected some people, you know, Mm -hmm. in China, for instance, where Two Hands does uh, a little bit of work. You know, the narrative continues to be that frozen imports are a high-risk thing. We effectively stopped exporting uh, or importing into China um, completely during COVID because it just became so hard to do it due to government-led fear about the risk of COVID. And so I think as much as it's still affecting a lot of us, you know, and I, I guess I do see the COVID argument sort of falling into the background a little bit. I mean, most of us kind of have just gotten on with our lives, those of us who haven't been severely affected, I suppose, yeah. um, and other broader shifts in a desire for a more sustainable life, though I think are certainly continuing or bubbling along. And it's those, I guess, that we now need to capture and, and you know, make the most of. Yeah, Absolutely. What, what would you say is the biggest systemic challenge the food industry is up against currently? <laughs> Great question. Is there one? I don't know. I mean, the food system <laughs> as a system itself is the systemic challenge, right? If you, if you think about the perceived pressure for growth to feed the world, right, um, mm. that's, that's huge. Then you balance that against what you guys at, at Post Harvest really know better than anyone is that we throw out almost 50% yeah. of what we produce sometimes. So yeah. so how true is that perceived pressure for growth, right? If we're throwing mm. out 50% of the, the calories that we're producing. Um, you know, there's a growing demand for protein in the rising middle class around the world, um, driven by this idea that a protein fuel diet is the most healthy one that we need. And then there's an unequal distribution of, of nutrient-rich food to wealthy regions. And so there's that, that tension as well. The idea that local food systems can't support local communities and long supply chains and export is such a critical piece of the puzzle. This one sort of bugs me the most, I suppose. Um, mm. You know, I can't help think that it's often an excuse to to make a lot of money exporting and importing high value products, not actually yeah. feeding regions of the world that actually need that commodity product or need those calories the most. So, yeah. you know, uh, I don't know if I can nail one of those down. Um, I think you know, it is just a systemic challenge, right? And and as with all system challenges, they've got many levers and we need many people to kind of collaborate to get to get through them. Yeah, yeah. So then what's the vision of the future that Two Hands is working towards and what challenges lay ahead? Yeah, look, um, fundamentally, we want to decentralize the food supply chain. We want a producer to, you know, of whatever scale, it doesn't matter if they're your local farm or whether they're, you know, a large scale fishery, whatever it happens to be, we want them to have access and own their own market through our marketplace ecosystem and our supply chain services. You know, we want processors, logistics agents, all of those people to um, be a service to those primary producers so that the power falls back into the hands of primary producers They can earn a little bit more money, they can invest in sustainable management. Um, and all of those things that we want to see. So, you know, that's that's fundamentally the vision. We want that recognition of the primary producer back. There's such a disconnect, right? Like, and you know, this is that really romantic commentary that you hear all the time of like, oh, how good would it be if, you know, you knew the name of your farmer? It's like, yeah, cool, but like it's actually kind of true, right? Like it's a very like loose, non-factual reason, definitely. But, you know, I, I really do believe that the fact that we're so removed from the production side of our food means that we just don't care like if you don't know where or how your fish is being fished like you know 200 nautical miles off the coast of australia why would you care about it it's so beyond your imagination so the idea of bringing that story in front of people 
um, I think is is really important. You asked about challenges as well, and you know, like every disruptor that's around there, um, you know, we're already facing backlash from the status quo. Right? Mm. Um, people, people that are, I guess, sitting in that place that I discussed you know, being removed from the food system or, you know, be asking them to adapt their business models, the inevitable is happening. They don't necessarily see the benefit straight away and that's normal for human behavior and we're, we're accepting that, but that's like every disrupted industry, right? Um, yeah. And that will no doubt intensify. Um, mm. So watch this space, I suppose. Yeah, totally. When it comes to food loss, waste, and sustainability, what's the biggest area related to your role that you're curious about? Mm, interesting. That's a really good question. It's not totally relevant to my work, but um, you know, I've had some amazing mentors and colleagues through uh, some sort of academic connections that I've got that are deep in the study of human behaviors and decision-making around waste. And they sort of really, th- them in particular, are dialing down into sort of household behaviors and what what we do as individuals in the home like why we throw out food or why we buy things let them sit in the fridge and then you know just kind of forget about them or why mm-hmm. we cut 50 percent of the food you know the carrot tops off and don't use them like why don't we eat that you know yep. all of this kind of really like granular stuff they've done this, this a few amazing studies that are out there um, being released bracketing people into you know under planners for instance um, people that are sort of generally disinterested in food that don't really plan what they eat they just kind of buy it so how do they treat food what are the decisions that they make around food and how they handle food in their home or out out of the home you know what are considerate planners do with a little bit more mm-hmm. spare time to think um and you know if when you really look at, at people in categories and 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 the human psyche of those different sorts of people and how they you know how they make very micro decisions on a day-to-day basis you can start to really think about the kinds of interventions that might work and i find that yeah. really fascinating i really you know that that human behavioral side of it all is fundamental to you know not just waste in the household but if you really think about like what is it that drives us to make decisions around sustainability it you know it's a weird mix of uh social pressure and you know you know what your mates doing what you see your mates doing what you perceive your mates to be doing on instagram that kind of thing and then it's you know all of these other influences and so it's super complex um and and i find it unbelievably fascinating (laughs) yeah definitely so is there a particular group or innovation within the industry that you're excitedly keeping a watchful eye on? You mean aside from post-harvest? Aside from post-harvest, <laughs> of course. Um, absolutely. You know, um, you might not call it innovative or some people might not call it innovative um, because in a historic sense, I suppose it's not. But, you know, there's a, there's a real resurgence of really incredible small scale, medium scale and, and increasingly larger scale farmers following a social, scientific and environmental doctrine of agroecology, which you may not have heard of, but it sort of blends the ideas into a really context specific idea of basically what is appropriate to how and what is appropriate to farm in a location according to that location, both across all of those dynamics, right? Yeah. And these systems are producing huge amounts of food in truly regenerative ways. And this is not the large-scale industry-adopted branding of regenerative where it's sort of a marketing tool, but a really wholesome focus on connection to soil and, and, and quality of product. And this is innately sustainable in, in the absolute truest sense. And I believe it's absolutely scalable in a decentralized system like what we're, we're focusing on, right? Look, I'm calling it innovative because 
we've never really had more scientific tools at our disposal. And now these are getting blended in these really like literally grassroots approaches and small yeah. scale holistic behaviors that are feeding communities. Yeah. Do we still need, you know, massive monocultures in that future? That's a huge question. Oh, it really is. So what's one thing you wish you had known when you first decided to take the leap from working in kitchens to helping improve <laughs> the very food systems that led to those kitchens? <laughs> Uh, we all make a lot of those life choices, I think, relatively naively at first, right, Mitch? Yeah. yeah <laughs> I don't know, I'm sure yeah. you've made a couple. Definitely. Um, look, I never expected or understood initially why or how or exactly how hard it would be to get people to change their behaviors or adopt new ideas. You know, I'm sure you might have had conversations with people where you're just like, why are you not getting this? <laughs> Um, and you know, I definitely have a much better appreciation of that now. And I think I would have liked to be better aware of that to begin with. Cause you know, when I first started to drive new ideas down people's throats, I was probably less tactful being younger and and having not had so many people throw it back in my face. Um, Mm. so, you know, now I take a much more level-headed and long-term approach in the way that I work, I think. And and, and by nature, I think I'm having probably a little bit more success. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So we are coming to a close, but before we do, I just want to ask you, what is the number one takeaway you really want the listeners to absorb from this episode? We didn't really discuss it, but uh, look, I don't really like talking about, you know, such huge concepts like food system challenges or food system change without talking about the the really critical like little steps that are made, um, the, those little changes that are that, really fundamentally matter at that human level at that independent level um Mm. look no no one person can solve climate change right and a lot of skeptics will say that the little decisions don't matter um you know people throw that in my face all the time it's like well what does it matter if i do this like that big corporation is doing that Mm. um but you know if you if if people that are listening to this take away one message just you know please let it be this every little decision about the way you source and eat food absolutely does make a difference yeah like let me break it out for you if i guess if you and everybody else that shops at your local market refuses to buy the critically endangered species that might be on sale there the fishmonger will then stop selling it right yeah if all the fishmongers stop selling it then the market will stop stocking it. If the market stops accepting it from the fishers, the fishers will stop fishing it because the price will be so damn low. And so mm. you can see the flow on effect that that occurs from a little decision at the household level. And you you know, people will go, Yeah, but like so many people have to agree to do that and it's so hard. How are you going to get that to happen? Well, look, you've got to start somewhere. And I guess the work that we're doing at Two Hands is it's there to make those decisions and those choices a lot more easier. Make every item of food traceable to source with sustainability credentials intact you know make that a service so you can make these decisions um and everybody can make these decisions really just put that information in front of people so it it kind of bridges that behavioral barrier i suppose yeah absolutely well that's all for today's episode of let's talk farm to fork thanks for listening and thank you sasha for joining me today oh it's been awesome mitch thanks for having me here If you'd like to know more about Sasha and Two Hands, check out the link in the description of this episode. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review and share with your friends. Until next time, you've been listening to Let's Talk Farm to Fork, a post-harvest podcast. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Let's Talk Farm to Fork. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. 
Also, if you would like to learn more about how you can practically play your part in maximizing fruit and vegetable supplies, whether you're a supplier, consumer, or anyone in between the farm to fork journey, visit postharvest.com and try out their free online course library today.